2: Welcome back to Strict Scrutiny, your podcast about the Supreme Court and the legal culture that surrounds it. We're your hosts. I'm Melissa Murray.
0: I'm Kate Shaw.
3: And I'm Leah Littman. And the band is back together. It feels good, um, but also anxiety inducing, as we'll talk Terrifying. about in yes. right a second. Um, but we also know we have some new listeners. So we figured we'd do some brief reintroductions. So I'm Leah Littman. I'm a law professor at the University of Michigan, where I write on constitutional law and federal courts. I am a huge Taylor Swift fan and reality TV aficionado, um, especially RuPaul's Drag Race and FY Island. My other passions include my mini golden doodle dog, making jokes about enforcing the Voting Rights Act. I'm not going to explain that right now. Um, and also making sure all of America knows what Sam Alito is up to. I clerked on the Supreme Court, and in the before times, before there was a majority of forced birth advocates on the court, did some practicing before the Supreme Court as well, including in Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstedt, the case invalidating a pair of Texas abortion restrictions, um, and DHS versus Regents, the case invalidating President Trump's rescission of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. Hellerstedt, we hardly
2: knew you. Um, <laughs> on that note, I'm Melissa Murray. I am a law professor at NYU. And before that, I was a law professor and sometime dean of Berkeley Law. I am an expert in reproductive rights and justice, constitutional law, and Meghan Markle and her in-laws, <laughs> a.k.a. the royal family. And my passions are my own family, my dog, a little beeshpoo named Cole, who is perfect in every way, uh, skin care, Uh, Supreme Court and otherwise, fashion, and again,
0: Meghan Markle
2: and her in-laws. And I clerked for Justice Sotomayor when she was an appellate judge on the Second Circuit.
0: And finally, I'm Kate Shaw. I'm a law professor at Cardozo Law School in New York City, where I teach administrative law, constitutional law, and some other topics. Um, Before law teaching, I worked as a lawyer in the Obama White House Counsel's Office. And before that, I clerked for Justice Stevens on the Supreme Court and Judge Posner on the Seventh Circuit. Um, I live in Brooklyn. I am a running and yoga aficionado. I have three kids and a wonderful rescue dog who is perfect in a different way from Leah and Melissa's dogs, but perfect in her own way. All that means I'm perpetually underslept, totally clueless about TV references um, and generally five minutes late to our recording sessions, although I was basically on time today, ladies. I you were like I three minutes late, which is progress. You were th- My <laughs> clock said 2.01, <laughs> one minute late. I was Kay. in the waiting room at two. I really was.
2: All right, Kate. It was bad bitch <laughs> o'clock and you were a little
0: late. <laughs> right. That's fair. That's um, fair.
2: Before we get into the court, can we take a beat for a minute and just sort of you know, ruminate on some of the things that have happened since we were last together. Um, I know you guys were together at Michigan for your live show, but I was recovering from the funeral of her majesty, Queen Elizabeth the second. And I just want to just maybe say a few things about that. Um, Can we talk about our dear friend and strict scrutiny invitee, Meghan Markle, and her amazing funeral fashion and her single tear, that one single tear that she allowed to just like glide down her cheek? Like she was just serving funeral realness like no jewelry and, and like her in-laws were like doing the most like Kate Middleton the new princess of Wales was wearing this massive hat with a net and a bow and a pearl necklace which looked like it had like a pearl vagina on it It was weird uh, but she needed to edit her look I really I, I Kate looked beautiful but she needed to edit her look
3: and is, is there looked a way amazing. this this relates to the Supreme Court
2: Yes, because Meghan Markle was wearing this glorious Stella McCartney cape dress that was black. And I, I have to say, I saw it and I was like, this is SCOTUS fashion. This is giving SCOTUS realness. I would love to see Sonia Sotomayor, Elena Kagan, Katanji Brown-Jackson, maybe even Amy Coney Barrett wearing this cape dress to oral argument. Like, make it longer, of course, but make it fashion.
0: I feel like I didn't always know, but now do know, that the justices don't, like, get an official robe in conjunction with their commission from the president. They just buy their own robes. And so there's, like, a little variation you can see when they're all standing together. So, Melissa, you're right. There is nothing stopping the justices No, from adopting this insanely gorgeous cape robe style that the duchess debuted. (laughs) What if one of
3: them printed on the back of it? I don't care. care. Do you? you?
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, because they care so much. But I think you're right about the messaging opportunities. Yes. Right. Of course, Chief Justice Rehnquist, you know, famously uh, adorned his robe during the impeachment trial of President Bill Clinton with these three yellow. Gilbert stripes.
2: and Sullivan. He was like, I'm going I'm, I'm serving Gilbert and Sullivan.
0: And then he retained that robe for the duration of his time on the bench. And I don't think anyone since has really undertaken any sartorial flourishes. I guess that's not true. Uh, The robe, that's true about. Ginsburg would, of course, don her famous jabos, you know, the dissenting one, the majority opinion one, when she was announcing opinions from the bench. But the robes have gone unadorned. And I think that needs to end.
2: Yeah, I I think this cape dress could be the, this is the perfect (laughs) intervention. And when your job is a little bit like attending a funeral every day for (laughs) a whole year, like why not? We are here to witness the death
3: of American law and democracy. Um, Single tier. single Exactly. So that's a good, I think that's a
0: good segue. Yeah. Yeah. So we
3: are here for, for season four of the podcast on the eve of a new Supreme Court term. Wow. How was your summer
2: without rights? How was your first (laughs) summer without rights? Was it good? Did you get a lot
0: done? I think that's why it feels so surreal to be sitting here on the cusp of doing all of this madness all over again when it feels like we are still so deeply immersed in the fallout from the last term, right? We're obviously going to be dealing with the fallout from Dobbs and other cases for decades. And that is true in the sense of the profound consequences this term is continuing to have for people's lives and health and safety. For many people in many states, it has fundamentally upended access to medical care and control over reproductive lives. And we should be clear that Access And that control were tenuous for many people well before Dobbs. Uh, but since Dobbs, that has only accelerated. 14 states have banned all or most abortions. Other states in which litigation is ongoing are trying. Right, the on the ground effects of last term's biggest decision are massive and they are ongoing.
3: And it's not just the on-ground effects of the particular decisions, you know, the consequences of last term are also because the court's approach to law and the resulting chaos in the law and our government institutions it produces. And so we don't want to sit here and be like, okay, well, that was that, time to roll up our sleeves, pretend like none of that happened, and play this game again. Um, Not suggesting anyone in particular is doing that, but... um, some maybe are, um, but you know, we are not back to a normal court that acts like a serious judicial institution, and we have not somehow magically moved beyond the past term.
0: It's worth pausing on that for a minute, just because if you are relatively new to following the Supreme Court, I think it is important for us to underscore that none of this is normal, right? It is not normal for the Supreme Court to torch prior cases the way it has in the last term. It is not normal for the court to do things like order executions to proceed even when lower courts have put those executions on hold for various sound legal reasons. It's not normal for the court to second guess state and federal public health officials' decisions the way it did throughout the pandemic. But, you know, all of this and more is where we are. But it is important not to become numb to how atypical and how anomalous all of this is.
2: What's also atypical is all of these justices hitting the media circuits to say, everything is fine. Yeah, It's all fine. Except for Elena Kagan, who's like, it's not all fine. It's actually terrible. And this is really bad. So more for your this is not normal pile. But ladies, that was the last term. This is the new term. And everything's going to be different, right? (laughs) Yeah, no. It's not going (laughs) to be different. Um, That was me trying to be... Optimistic. It's not going to be different. It's actually just going to pile on. And, you know, there's more we can say about October term 2022. And indeed, we're going to spend most of this episode talking about what's in store for this term, drawing on what we've learned over the last couple of years. But I'm just going to say it. This term is merely a continuation. Like we got a hiatus. So, where to start? The justices are going to resume hearing cases on the first Monday of October. That is normal. That is what they normally do. And this year, that is October 3rd, the day that this episode will be released. Uh, But prior to the resumption of oral arguments on Friday, the 30th, the day that we are taping, the court actually issued a new photograph of the new Roberts court featuring the newest justice, Ketanji Brown-Jackson. It's not the official photo because President Biden and Vice President Harris are in there, but still. So, I just wanted to call attention again to some notes. Um, you know, we don't really get to see below the robes that often, so there's some interesting points here. First of all, our boy Sam really looks like he celebrated all summer long. Like when you lay waste to 50 years worth of precedent, you deserve to tie one on, and it looks like he did. Like I mean, he looks a little weathered.
3: I mean, am I wrong? I. No. He looks puffy. Right, he looks like he had a few too many Ginny tonics this summer. And he just looked like he raged all summer, and yes. like, and he just had the best time. It, like his skin
2: looks red and a little mottled. Like it, this is not what we're used to. So again, no. this is not normal. No. Um, I mean, usually this is a septuagenarian who's looking like he's fifty years old. Like he looks, again, weathered.
0: He looks rough. Um, it made me wonder whether you know he was sporting that beard for part of the summer, and I don't mm. know. He was covering all of this up, and I wonder whether he might want to consider bringing that beard back because he You can't
3: hide it. the bags under the eyes, I'm just saying, right? Like, the beard, no beard is not no going to make that, that go away. <laughs> like, your whole face is covered <laughs> in hair. <here. laughs>
0: right. But, you know, look, is it possible he looked as kind of terrible as he did because he was standing next to the reflected light of the beautiful Katanji Brown Jackson standing next to him in the photos? That is
2: possible. I mean we're going to call this the megan Markle kate middleton effect i guess um, <laughs> it could be that um i will also call attention like most of the men on the court got the white shirt with an either blue or red tie uh, to convey that you are you are part of a non-partisan institution so blue or red either one but not neil gorsuch neil gorsuch decided to serve a new look an lewk look and he decided to come to this portrait Wearing a blue shirt, and to which I say, continue to slay, Neil. Like, (laughs) this is the kind of iconoclastic behavior that allows you to be the most important voice on federal Indian law questions (laughs) at the Supreme Court. So. Continue that. Justice Barrett was also serving fierce looks. She had a pair of red, maroon-ish suede shoes. Like, again, does not seem regulation. This is a new kind of turn for the court. So I thought this was a really interesting Are you supposed to have
3: red shoes with your red robes? Is that a thing? I mean, I don't know, Justice
2: Sotomayor, to Kate's earlier point about people getting to kind of wear whatever robe they want she had a kind of satiny robe on. it didn't look regulation. um I don't know how I feel about this. I love justice sotomayor i like I don't love a satin robe. um I did love Justice Kagan's outfit. She had this very sort of subtle gold link necklace, and I really want a necklace like that. It looks really good and but the real headliner in all of this our newest Justice, Ketanji Brown-Jackson. And again, we never get to see below the robes. But in this picture, you got full-length Justices. And she was wearing a pair of chunky-heeled black pumps with an ankle strap and a little bit of tweed detailing. And I was like... Okay, here we go. Like, we have never seen this on the court before. And I kind of loved it. So she was the headliner. Um, It was a very strong start for her, sartorial wise. And I can't wait to see what the rest of the term brings. Like, you know, while we're overruling affirmative action, let's make it fashion.
3: Um, So maybe speaking (laughs) about this upcoming term, let's look ahead to term themes, specific cases, and anything else we're watching for. We'll also do a general roundup of the vibes on the eve of this court's term. So some term themes um, I'm watching for or envisioning, you know. To my mind, like one question that really is a through line across several cases the court is hearing is the court will ponder the question of, is democracy constitutional? And part of that will involve assessing whether laws or doctrines that help facilitate the existence of a multiracial democracy are constitutional. See, you just said it, Leah. I think they're fine with democracy. It's that mm, multi-racial. multiracial yeah. part I'm actually not problem. even sure if they're fine with democracy. Like I envision Neil Gorsuch and Sam Alito as the reply guys that are like, but actually we're a republic. Rep- um, yeah, that Mike Lee line. The Mike Lee Exactly. Leland. Exactly. Yeah, right. um, but but these are the cases about the Voting Rights Act, which we'll talk about later, the independent state legislature idea. um, And, you know, this also (laughs) concerns the cases about the government's power to remedy discrimination. um, You know, the affirmative action case that Melissa, you alluded to, as well as a case on the Indian Child Welfare Act. Um, Those cases in particular will also prompt a what I am envisioning to be a Dobbs leak style investigation led by the chief justice with maybe a possible assist from Ginny Thomas that will look into whether Justice Thurgood Marshall is the real racist since all of these <laughs> cases ask some version of is it discrimination on the basis of race to enact measures that take into account race in order to prevent further discrimination on the basis of race or to remedy past discrimination on the basis of race. Um, You know, Leah,
2: I heard it once said that the best way to stop (laughs) discriminating on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race.
3: That would be the Chief Justice's famous line from Parents Involved, in which he equated, you know, efforts to integrate schools that took account of race with Jim Crow era segregation. This is why I am jokingly suggesting these. These cases prompt the question of whether Justice Thurgood Marshall and other individuals that helped secure desegregation, um, you know, were themselves engaged in racial discrimination. Food for thought, it turns out. Um, And of course, the court will continue its quest to demolish our system of constitutional remedies and in the process leave important rights unenforceable. And I'm just going to put that one out there because this is a theme we will return to later
0: Okay. So in terms of big themes to watch, Leah, you covered a lot of them. Let me just throw in a couple of other things. Just to draw out the point you were alluding to, the court is poised to hear three cases at the moment. There could be more added to the docket. A Voting Rights Act, Merrill versus Milligan, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. The Harvard and UNC affirmative action cases we've now mentioned, and that we talked about at length with Michelle Adams last week. And the case about the constitutionality of the Indian Child Welfare Act, ICWA, that all have this very important through line. So they are about... Very different topics, right? Legislative redistricting, affirmative action, adoption placement. But taken together, they could absolutely result in this being the term in which the court reads the Constitution's guarantee of the equal protection of the laws as outlawing efforts to eradicate discrimination. You said this before, Leah. I'm saying it again now. If it sounds crazy, I agree. But there is absolutely a view on this court, and I think it is likely now the majority view, that says all government use of race is equally pernicious and equally constitutionally suspect, whether we're talking about using race to build diverse college classes or ensure adequate representation to voters of color or to ensure Native children up for adoption have a meaningful opportunity to be placed with members of their tribes against a history of forcible removal of Native children and the deliberate destruction. Of Native families and cultures. But this view says the Constitution views all of that as identical to using race to entrench and protect white supremacy. And as Melissa alluded to, John Roberts has historically been the chief proponent of this view, and that is since way before he was the chief justice, right? So, you know, going all the way back to 1982, when he was a 26-year-old lawyer in the Reagan Justice Department, he was writing memo after memo opposing expanding the Voting Rights Act. Then in 2007, once he's in a position to actually enshrine these views into law, he writes the opinion containing the stop discrimination on the basis of race by stopping discriminating on the basis of race language, In 2013, he authored Shelby County versus Holder, striking down a key provision of the Voting Rights Act. So, look, I think his view is clear. And the big question, to my mind, is whether his concern about pumping the brakes somewhat on this, you know, what Leah has coined the YOLO court, will overtake his desires to finally see this 40-year effort bear fruit.
3: My guess is no. (laughs)
2: Well, I think you're right. Um, Let me add, as this entire term plays out, I think we should institute a little strict scrutiny drinking game. And the game is this. Anytime someone mentions the first Justice Harlan and his dissent in Plessy, you have to take a drink because invariably the people invoking Justice Harlan are going to be the people trying to dismantle efforts to remedy past racial discrimination. But isn't that going right?
3: mean we are going to result in Sam Alito
2: We're going gonna to so in look weathered. We're right. going to look weathered. We
3: are literally going to look
2: like we were road hard and put away wet. Um, <laughs> we're going to look so messed up at the end of this. Um, you're right. But to prove a point, I mean, like they're going to beat Justice Harlan with a stick until he's done.
0: We may have to sacrifice our skin in service of making <laughs> the point that this is unbelievable hypocrisy. And,
2: or, or we're just tempted to do extra hydration for the whole term just to <laughs> counteract the effects of this. Um, it's gonna be a lot of drinking.
0: I feel like I'm ready, ladies. I think I think I'm ready for it to do what is needed.
2: So a couple of other themes just to highlight. Um, one, I think is we're gonna see more history, like more history and tradition. And the best part of invoking history is that no one on this court actually. Is trained as an historian. So this is going to be fantastic. Um, I think we're going to see more selective invocations of history. So, you know, when Justice Thomas writes the opinion overruling Grutter and ending affirmative action in higher education, we're going to have this whole history about how the consideration of race itself is racist. But we're going to miss the whole history of how the Equal Protection Clause is actually drafted and ratified in the wake of a Civil War fought about slavery and indeed the racist act of owning people. And we're not going to hear anything about that. So I can't wait for that, like the perversion of history that we're going to get, chef's kiss. I think we're also going to hear continued discussions of the court's legitimacy, perhaps by the justices themselves, but even by others. I mean, again, I want to draw a line under this. We are going to get in this term for the first time, perhaps in a long time, maybe even ever, where the spouse of a sitting Supreme Court justice testifies before a select committee of congress about her text messages to the chief of staff of a former president during what was apparently an effort to overthrow the results of a validly conducted election so what well, you're I saying mean, this is only
0: maybe the
3: first time in history well, i just Abe,
2: <laughs> uh, Abe there was a whole flap with melissa Abe unlike the justices
3: hair. is a rigorous historian <laughs> this is why she has membership in the organization of american historians so good point good point well,
2: Abe Fortas's wife had some trouble um Carolyn I, I forget what her last name is and so I actually haven't gone to look and see if she was before a congressional committee but I do know that there was some issue with Abe Fortas's wife and whether he himself had engaged in um, some acts of impropriety during his time as a justice oh. and I think it was actually oh, he what stopped that's him why from he couldn't being get elevated to justice. be chief yeah yeah, yeah no, that's why exactly um so I didn't want to sort of say broadly it's the yeah. only time it's ever happened um because there may have been this little flap earlier but I mean in recent memories certainly in my lifetime I don't think we've ever seen a spouse of a sitting oh. justice to do this. Um, although... Could you imagine if, like, Justice Breyer's wife, Joanna, had to go before car? Like, no, you can't, because it would never happen.
3: Although nope. you just wonder whether if Republicans take back the House or the Senate, they're going to think, like, what goes around comes around. I'm going to require, like, poor Patrick Jackson Patrick to appear Jackson. before a Senate committee or something, right? You know. Explain why you kissed her on the head exactly. when she walked down the steps. Exactly. Exactly. And
0: the socks. Ex- explain your socks. Explain
3: <laughs> your socks, sir. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> um. So, in addition to those themes, there are also particular cases we're watching. I'll just put a pin in the Voting Rights Act case, which will preview Merrill versus Milligan, as well as the independent state legislature case, Moore versus Harper. The cases about the availability of remedies that I'm watching are an important habeas case, Joan versus Hendricks, about whether someone who's convicted of something that isn't a crime or sentenced to more time in prison than the law says they can serve has a remedy for that problem. Um, and then there's an important spending clause case. Case about whether individuals who are beneficiaries or participants in spending programs like Medicaid or whatnot can sue to enforce the conditions on those programs, um, and that's also an important case to watch that so we'll discuss more when it is up for argument.
0: Another big case that I'm watching is 303 Creative versus Alanis. I'm sure we'll all be watching it closely. It's kind of a sequel to the 2017 decision, uh, Masterpiece Cake Shop, which involved a Colorado baker who didn't want to bake a cake for a same-sex couple celebrating their marriage. This case involves the same Colorado anti-discrimination law. The plaintiff here is a would-be web designer who claims she will be burdened by having to design websites on a non-discriminatory basis although no one has asked her to design a website regarding a same-sex wedding or any wedding, as far as I can tell. Nevertheless, right, she is arguing that the First Amendment protects her from complying with this generally applicable uh, public accommodations law. And I think that whatever the court does here could have enormous implications for public accommodations laws broadly, right, like laws that require providers of goods or services who enter the marketplace to provide those goods and services on a non-discriminatory basis. These are laws the courts have enforced for over century. Uh, finding for this would-be web designer could have enormous implications well beyond this particular dispute, you know, in terms of our ability to reside together in a diverse and pluralistic society. Maybe the court could rule narrowly, but, you know, um, it's hard for me to see her winning without starting to unravel anti-discrimination law broadly. So this is a case I'm watching closely and incredibly nervous about.
2: Just to add to this issue on 303 Creative, it's worth noting that this was initially filed as a case dealing with both free exercise and speech. And the court declined to grant cert on the religious rights question, and instead is sort of thinking about this purely in terms of compelled speech. Uh, in avoiding the free exercise question, the court also avoided a broader issue that Laurie Smith asked them to take up, and that is whether Employment Division versus Smith, that 1990 case dealing with neutral laws of general applicability and their impact on religion, is continuing to be a constitutional decision. So perhaps a little restraint from the YOLO court and how they granted cert on this, although they could just simply you know, allude to the fact that Smith has been abandoned as <laughs> they have in other places and just avoid it entirely, but I thought it was really interesting. And to Leah's point about rights without remedies, and this relates to Justice Thomas's concurrence in Dobbs, um, You know, whether or not we get a frontal challenge to Obergefell going forward, as Kate says, this case will have real implications for non-discrimination, anti-discrimination measures. And again, it may be the case that you can marry a person of the same sex, but you just can't go out in public with them or can't expect to avail yourself of services that are generally available to the rest of the public.
0: Let me flag briefly two kind of lower profile cases that I'll be watching this term, SEC versus Cochrane and Axon versus FTC. These are two administrative law cases, both involving administrative law judges. Um, and they're both about your ability to challenge an enforcement proceeding that is ongoing. So right, it hasn't ended and you haven't been fined or you know had some final disposition. But whether you can challenge kind of midstream in order to allege a constitutional defect in the scheme and the constitutional defect that the parties in both cases are alleging, is that these removal limitations for both SEC and FTC administrative law judges are unconstitutional. So there's like threshold reviewability question, but the substantive constitutionality question about whether these positions of ALJ are constitutional has the potential to kind of further advance the project of a bunch of different cases that we've talked about on this podcast, including maybe most importantly, Selah Law. And that's a project that is basically extremely skeptical about agency independence and basically emphasizes the importance of the president controlling everyone and everything inside the executive branch, Right, valuing that idea of presidential control much more than Congress's authority to design agencies in ways that are sometimes novel, right? C.C. Leah, who's written about novelty, but allowing Congress to respond to new and developing problems and needs, Right, the court seems to really undervalue that Principle in the Constitution, and to overvalue, I think, presidential control, and so I think these cases have the potential to kind of further advance that project.
2: Some other cases that we're following, obviously, everyone is, of course, following the two cases concerning affirmative action: Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard, and Students for Fair Admissions versus UNC. The two cases raise two very different but related sets of issues. The Harvard case deals with the statutory challenge to the use of affirmative action, race-based affirmative action, in higher education admissions. The UNC case. with whether the Equal Protection Clause permits uh, public schools like the University of North Carolina to consider race as part of its admissions processes. Um, I think we all know how this is going to turn out. I mean, I'm sorry if I'm like a total pessimist, but again, this, this issue was taken up by the court in 2003, a very different court, a five to four court in which Justice um, O'Connor joined the liberals to uphold the affirmative action policies at the University of Michigan, but that's obviously not the court we have now. And I think the real question here is, How is the court going to write the decision overruling affirmative action and Grutter in a way that isn't like Dobbs, where it's like, huh, we just looked at this a couple of years ago in 2003, and now it's totally different. And what else is different? The whole composition of this court is different. So I I think if they want to avoid legitimacy questions, it's going to be you know, – they're going to have to really contort themselves to write a decision that looks – law and not vibes. And I'll be eager to see how they strike that balance. But I I do think this is a done deal and affirmative action is going to be over. The real question, I think, going forward is, you know, it's going to spark a lot of litigation because this is focused on admissions. But obviously, the use of race and other kinds of protected characteristics factors into just the operation of many institutions of higher education. And that will be an ongoing question. Another set of cases to flag for you, Brakeen versus Holland, which is four consolidated cases, all concerning the constitutionality of the Indian Child Welfare Act. That's a federal statute enacted in 1978 that does, among other things, establishes minimum standards for the removal of native children from their parents and their families and establishes a preference for native children who are removed from their homes to be placed with extended family members or in native foster homes. And the question in this case is whether these provisions of ICWA that prescribe these minimum standards impose placement preferences and record keeping requirements for child welfare proceedings involving native children violate the anti-commandeering principle of the 10th Amendment and whether they violate equal protection clause. And so the sort of undergirding question here is whether Native status is a political category, as it has always been viewed as, or whether it is a racial category, which would be a very novel um, new determination
3: from this young and restless court. Strict Scrutiny is brought to you by Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Oklahoma recently approved the nation's first religious public school, You heard that correctly, a religious public school. If you've paid attention to the Supreme Court over the past few years, you probably noticed a trend – The Supreme Court's ultra-conservative faction gutted church-state protections in order to funnel public money to private religious schools. Oklahoma is Christian Nationalist's latest test case, a blueprint for other conservative states to follow. Americans United for Separation of Church and State saw the dangerous precedent a religious public school would create across the country and promptly filed a lawsuit to stop St. Isidore of Seville Catholic Virtual School in Oklahoma. This is the latest effort to blur the lines between church and state. Taking tax money and directing it to a religious school that will indoctrinate students into a faith with plans to discriminate against anyone who doesn't adhere goes against the founding principles of our country. Americans United will keep fighting for freedom without favor, equality without exception. Keep up with this issue at au.org.
4: The Living Room is where you make life's most beautiful memories.
3: So maybe now we can talk about the specific cases that the court is going to hear the first week of this new term. So during the first week, the court is going to hear a major challenge to another administrative agency and the authority of the regulatory state, that case is Sackett versus EPA. Um, So this case also continues the courts steamrolling over the jurisprudence of Justice Anthony Kennedy. All the while, you know, Justice Kavanaugh gaslights us that he has the utmost respect for the justice and all of his opinions. Um, Now, the question in this case is specifically about the EPA's authority under the Clean Water Act and how to determine whether certain wetlands are, quote, waters of the United States that the EPA can regulate. You know, last term, the court kneecapped the Clean Air Act, but why just stop there, right? Just do it all, YOLO, right? Like, yeah.
0: The background here is in a prior case, uh, Rapanos versus United States, a majority of the court said that wetlands were regulable under the Clean Water Act. So, kind of the math here is a little complicated, but bear with me for a second. So, Justice Scalia wrote the plurality opinion in that case, and he concluded that wetlands were only regulable, right? The EPA could only regulate them if they had a continuous surface connection to bodies of water, like rivers or streams. So, that was a very narrow view of the EPA's authority. Um, Justice Stevens.
2: real riparian here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't help it. Go.
0: Um <laughs> sorry. Water water related, water related for folks who are not steeped <laughs> in uh the language. Yeah, so that is yes. that is riparian. Inside joke. Um, sorry. Yes. <laughs> That's not an um, inside joke. <laughs> Sorry, but there are probably listeners for whom rip- riparian is not like yes. You know, no, a term I'm sure that, that still that does often. not make
3: the <laughs> use of the word riparian an inside joke. Who's okay, the real okay. riparian? You can, you know where it's coming from. <laughs> Justice Scalia is the real riparian. <laughs>
0: All right. Focus, people. All right. Focus. (laughs) Okay. So back to this 2006 case. Um, So Justice Stevens, in dissent, uh, for himself plus three others, so writing for four justices, took a very broad view of when wetlands could be regulated. And then Justice Kennedy wrote separately to explain that wetlands could be regulated if they had a, quote, significant nexus to more traditional navigable waters. So the Justice Kennedy opinion was the controlling one. So if you take the Kennedy opinion plus the Stevens opinion, that's five votes for of the EPA having the authority to, you know, regulate at least where there is a significant nexus to more traditional navigable waters as compared to the really restrictive uh, Justice Scalia vision of the EPA's authority. But here, the plaintiffs are basically asking the court to jettison the Kennedy test in favor of one that would make wetlands surprise surprise much less subject to regulation. So they basically are asking the court to adopt the Scalia view. The wetlands can be regulated only if they have a continuous surface water connection to navigable waters. This would significantly limit the EPA's authority to regulate under the Clean Water Act. And the stakes here are really high. The EPA basically says that wetlands play an essential role in protecting, and I'm quoting from the Solicitor General's brief here, the chemical, physical, and biological integrity of neighboring waterways, including by filtering pollutants, storing water, providing flood control. So, deeming those wetlands outside of the regulatory purview of the EPA would have significant compromising impact on the EPA's ability to protect water. And like what, is, what the EPA has done in, over the last half century to, you know, water quality has been absolutely transformational, right? Like you can swim and you can fish, you can drink like waters in this country that 50 years ago were, you know, just like absolutely polluted disasters. And- Not in this is, Jackson,
2: Mississippi, Kate.
0: Right. No. So, And considering the kind of serious water problems we have right now, and flooding and sort of related issues to further kneecap the EPA at this moment would I think be potentially quite disastrous. And yet that is what these plaintiffs are seeking.
2: Let me get this right. The petitioners are seeking yet another deregulatory slash anti-regulatory, anti-environmental ruling. And I'm guessing they're probably going to get it. it seems Pour like it. one yeah. out for the climate. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Pour one out for the planet. Yeah.
0: I will briefly just mention two smaller cases the court is hearing the first week of arguments. Um the first is an original jurisdiction case, although not one involving riparian rights unusually typically they do. Um but this is a case so original jurisdiction cases are cases that are filed in the first instance in the Supreme Court. So if you're a state, you actually just file your complaint in the Supreme Court. You don't start in the lower federal courts like most people do. Um and the question in this case Delaware versus Pennsylvania and Wisconsin is whether moneygram official checks are a money order um, um, traveler's checks or other similar written instrument on which a banking or financial organization is directly liable. So the case is just about basically a dispute between states over which state can claim certain abandoned property, whether, you know, it's Delaware where Moneygram is incorporated or the states where the Moneygrams were purchased. Um, I kind of love this
2: case. I kind of love <laughs> this <do> case. <laughs> like, Every so original case. Honestly, like, so weird like I would prefer
0: the court heard yeah. more of these kinds of cases. That them. would be a great yeah.
3: use of its time. <laughs>
2: love that Delaware is like, give me all the abandoned money (laughs) grams. I'm
0: ready for this. Well, maybe this is like the anti-Texas move. Instead of Texas basically filing suit constantly in the Fifth Circuit or the district courts of the Fifth Circuit and occasionally directly in the Supreme Court, states that are not Texas Mm -hmm. um, can start filing suits (laughs) that could could occupy the Supreme Court um, in ways that are much less damaging and destructive than what they would otherwise get up to. Okay. Anyway, other case from the first week that we thought we would just briefly mention. The court is hearing Ariano versus McDonough, which is a case about whether the one-year statutory deadline for seeking retroactive disability benefits from the VA is presumptively subject to equitable tolling. That is whether it can be forgiven, depending on the equities of the case.
2: So these are just like getting limber kind of cases. These are not big dogs, right? This is like hydrating, stretching, because Leah, what's the big case this
3: sitting? The court is starting out the first week of the term with Merrill. Versus Milligan, which I think is the biggest Voting Rights Act case since the Supreme Court heard Shelby County versus Holder, the case where the court dismantled the pre-clearance regime of the Voting Rights Act, Section 5, assuring us we didn't need Section 5 and the pre-clearance regime because we had Section 2. Well, <laughs> This case pointedly asks whether Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act is going to continue to exist as we know it, and it will be argued by former strict scrutiny guest Duell Ross, along with several other terrific advocates, but that is the good news. It's kind of all downhill from there. So Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act prohibits election practices that result in a denial or abridgment of the right to vote on account of race. And Section 2 is often used for vote dilution claims. Vote dilution refers to instances where legislators draw districts in ways that dilute the voting power of some groups. And Section 2 is concerned with drawing districts in ways that dilute the voting power of racial minorities.
2: So let's unpack for a minute how vote dilution claims work. So we have talked on the show before about partisan gerrymandering, which is where legislators draw districts in ways that advantage a particular political party. And they do this through what's called packing and cracking, which is to say they pack the members of one political party into a district or a few districts and or crack the members of that same political party by spreading them out into different districts to ensure that they will be in the minority in those districts and won't be able to elect the candidate of their choice. And when that happens, a political party can win a majority of districts even though they lose a majority of the votes in a state. So democracy. Like I said,
3: is it constitutional? (laughs) Probably not.
0: probably not. Um, And in addition to partisan gerrymandering, where, you know, districts are drawn in ways to advantage a political party, there can also be racial gerrymandering. And racial gerrymandering occurs when legislative districts are drawn in ways that dilute the voting power of racial minorities. And this occurs in very similar ways, right? Through packing or cracking, a legislature might break up voters of color into as many districts as possible, ensuring that they are a minority in all of those districts, which prevents them from selecting candidates of their choice and, you know, having political power and political strength. That is roughly commensurate with their representation among voters. Um, Or they could be packed into a single district and then spread out elsewhere. So there could be, say, one district with a majority of, say, black voters, where their population-wide numbers would suggest that there would be, like, two or three majority black districts.
2: And and to be clear, racial gerrymandering, which the court is determined to be a justiciable issue, and partisan gerrymandering, which it's determined has not a justiciable issue for federal courts, uh, sometimes overlap in interesting ways because quite often – race and political preference or preference for a particular political party will coincide. So sometimes it's hard to tell whether you're partisan gerrymandering or doing racial gerrymandering at the same time. Um, So a little cagey there. But Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act and vote dilution claims under Section 2 is designed to prevent all of this and specifically to identify those instances where legislatures could easily have drawn districts in ways that resulted in voters of color electing candidates of their choice But instead, they created a districting plan that dilutes the voting power of voters of color. So again, imagine a district where a legislature cracked voters of color into many different districts so that there's no district or fewer districts where voters of color could likely put together a majority or a majority coalition. And that's essentially what happened in Alabama. Black Alabamans constitute over 27% of voters in that state. But they can only elect the candidate of their choice in one of seven districts, fourteen percent. And given the demographic breakdowns where black Alabamans live, it would have been very easy for there to be a second district where black voters could have elected the candidate of their choice. And the plaintiffs here claim that the state's plan created one rather than two minority opportunity districts by dividing, cracking the black population in the southern half of the state among several different districts.
0: And this case, like lots of others this term implicates the role of precedent and stare decisis. So Thornburg versus Jingles, which we've mentioned on the show uh, previously, is the foundational vote dilution case. Um, and there the court described a vote dilution claim as a claim that a certain you know law or practice or structure interacts with social and historical conditions to cause an inequality in the opportunities enjoyed by black and white voters to elect their preferred representatives. So Jingles identified three preconditions to this sort of vote dilution claim. So one, that the minority group is sufficiently large and geographically compact to constitute a majority in a single-member district. Um, Two, that the minority group is politically cohesive. And three, that the white majority votes sufficiently as a block to allow it to usually defeat the minority's preferred candidate. So if these preconditions are satisfied, the court has to then go on to assess the totality of the circumstances to determine whether a districting scheme leaves minority voters with less opportunity than white voters To elect representatives of their choice.
3: So the state's lead argument in Merrill versus Milligan is kind of straight up like, let's just do it and be legends in the sense that it would formally kill vote dilution claims under the Voting Rights Act. The state says in order to establish a violation of Section 2, a plaintiff must show that the state's enacted plan can be explained only by race and racial discrimination, but that would require the plaintiffs to prove intentional discrimination, and yet the Voting Rights Act was enacted to provide protections against unintentional discrimination. This provision of the Voting Rights Act was enacted in response to a Supreme Court decision that said only intentional discrimination was unlawful and the Constitution independently prohibits intentional discrimination. So the Voting Rights Act was supposed to go beyond that. And in fact, they would actually make it even harder to establish intentional discrimination um, under the Voting Rights Act than it is under the Equal Protection Clause. Like it just truly makes no sense.
2: The state's alternative argument is where all of the action likely will be in this oral argument. Um, It's also the one that they featured at the stay stage. This is one of those cases where the court put on hold a lower court decision that found a violation of the Voting Rights Act. The state's argument is that to satisfy the first Jingle's precondition, a plaintiff must show the minority group is sufficiently large and geographically compact to constitute a majority in a neutrally drawn plan. And by neutral, the state means without regard to race. So the state is basically saying, look, you have to show that a state would have drawn another district in which voters of color would be in the majority or majority coalition without ever considering anyone's race. Like show that a map drawn only by considering things like contiguous territory, natural boundaries, municipal lines or whatnot would have resulted in another majority minority district.
0: And this is wildly inconsistent with precedent. The court has held that satisfaction of the first Jingles precondition requires a plaintiff to show that its proposed districts, right, i.e. it's the proposed districts where voters of color would be part of the majority coalition, are reasonably compact and are otherwise reasonably configured. But it has never suggested that a plaintiff has to proffer districts that have been drawn without any consideration of race, right? Experts in these cases have understandably always drawn districts with a goal of showing there are compact, sensible, alternative districts in which voters of color would be in the majority. But they're not sitting down generating random maps and asking whether like a random map drawing simulation or software would produce a majority minority district.
2: Again, who's the real racist here? Obviously, the black Alabamans who want to vote right? would like to elect someone. This was why
3: I said it was the term theme, right?
2: Now, the reason why this argument is where the action is likely to be follows from a couple of things. So a majority of the court likely, probably, definitely views any effort to create a majority-minority district as constitutionally suspect, if not per se unconstitutional, when drawn by a legislature. And so they'll probably say, look, requiring plaintiffs to draw or to use race-neutral means prevents Section 2 from considering race in the redistricting process, because as we all know, this court does not see race because our Constitution is colorblind. But this too...
3: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
2: ah, that Ginny Tonic hits the spot. But this too would basically turn Section Two into effectively reaching only intentional discrimination, since the court would be requiring plaintiffs to show that but for race, the legislature would have drawn another set of districts. So that's not really
0: the law after. It's Jingles. literally what this amendment to the Voting Rights Act was I know. designed not to do, to Look, respond to the it's Supreme Court's correct. But this is the it's vibe. A vibe.
2: This right. is the vibe, Kate. <laughs> The vibe is, don't be the real racist, Kate, by considering race
3: <laughs> at all, ever. Yeah. The
0: 1982 um, Congress was the real racist, right, yes, in allowing yes, these yes. effects tests to and be used. And Chief
3: Justice Roberts yes. is the modern-day Thurgood Marshall. Um, think about that for yes, a second. Yes, um, that's right. Yeah. Um, the implications of this case are huge. And they the Federalist are... Society is LDF. <laughs> oh, God. Excuse me while I bomb. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, drink. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, wow. Um, the implications of this case are huge. They are about the representation of, you know, voters of color in the political process and the future of a multiracial democracy. You know, the Voting Rights Act is what made this country into a democracy. And the case, Merrill is about whether Congress can prohibit racial gerrymandering, or I guess whether some sort of racial gerrymandering is, like, constitutionally permissible or maybe required. You know, this is why, like, I joked that a term theme is whether democracy and multiracial democracy is constitutional. But this case is about the rules for conducting elections, like what makes elections democratic, what makes a democracy a democracy, and the rules about how political power can be obtained and should be obtained. And, you know, this term is just in time for spooky season, and it's fucking terrifying.
2: We've already gotten rid of partisan gerrymandering. We left that to the states and state courts, but they probably can't do anything because this independent state legislature theory fan fiction that we're going to bring up this term, too. And now we're going to get rid of racial gerrymandering and not hear those because we're not real racist. So basically, we're on a full on press to distort the F out of democracy, mm-hmm. just like break it all and, down.
0: Let's just to be really clear, when we say we got rid of, we mean we invited all of it, right? So we got rid of our ability to police it. We yeah. said to the states, they can do it all. They can partisan gerrymander. We are, you know, we may say they can racially gerrymander. And yeah, like the distortion of the ability of the populace to actually translate their desires to representation and policy, like, I have, it feels pretty tenuous. But we,
2: they <sighs> just literally said that abortion rights should go back to the states for democratic deliberation. Are you saying that that was all a farce, Kate?
0: Could there be a connection between these two things? Could there be? Could there mm. be?
3: My All dog right. was so terrified; she just insisted on <laughs> I leaving saw. the she room. Fled. <laughs> yeah, she fled. <laughs> she was like, Stevie, "I will opt out." Take us with you, Stevie. Please take Thank us you. with you. So, now to the court adjacent news. Um, new segment alert. Uh, Sammy Trolito and the Lets. That is like what is happening in the lower courts following the Supreme Court's lead. Uh, How about Yolitos? okay, that one works too. Yolito's Yolitos. also works. Speaking of Yolito's, when
2: we speak of Yolito's, we can only be looking at Texas, um, or at least principally at Texas. There was another notable ruling out of Texas. So let's discuss Judge Reed O'Connor's invalidation of the Affordable Care Act's preventative coverage requirement for PrEP drugs. So PrEP drugs are pre-exposure prophylaxis. Um, These are drugs that individuals take um, in advance of sexual intercourse to prevent the transmission of HIV AIDS. And so he said, said that the ACA cannot cover these drugs on the ground that requiring health insurance for them facilitates homosexual behavior, that is a quote, and violated the religious liberty rights of employers who object to LGBTQ equality and homosexuality more generally. So this case highlights the looming challenge to other constitutional rights. um, That, again, is Clearly, in the wake of the court's decision in Dobbs. Uh, Don't tell Justice Alito, but definitely look at Justice Thomas's concurrence there. And again, this is a strong
3: start from the Yolitos. Judge Reed O'Connor is a big Yolito, so he is the judge who struck down the Affordable Care Act, um, also the Indian Child Welfare Act, um, as well as several Obama-era regulations. Um, and he also apparently was on the Federalist Society speaking circuit where he gave a presentation entitled The Future of Religious Liberty, and I guess this is the future of religious liberty. Sometimes when I read Reed O'Connor opinions, I think, is this Sam Alito's substack?" stack um, and <laughs> It's it's a thought that's <laughs> crossed my mind.
0: He literally he's just like Sam Alina with like a trench coat on, um, and that's that's actually Reed O'Connor. So, in addition to siding with these employers' religious liberty objections, the opinion also finds that the individuals on the task force that recommended that this prep drug be covered were what are known as officers of the United States. These are part-time, unpaid volunteers, but the opinion nevertheless found that they were both officers of the United States and indeed principal officers, so had to be appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate it, which is honestly madness. It's, um, a mess. it's a mess. But that's also in Sam Alito's substack, aka Reed O'Connor's opinion on this matter.
2: Judge O'Connor did not stop there, though. So he had another doozy this week um, where he granted a temporary restraining order lifting a student's suspension for sexual assault. And this is noteworthy because the student actually admitted to being a rapist. But O'Connor said that the process was flawed because of gender bias. And I just want to emphasize, the student said in the proceedings, quote, It was difficult for me hearing that I am a rapist again, but it is true. And I am very sorry, end quote. The judge said that the hearing was biased because one of the co-chairs of the proceeding had written something about how men are more likely to act in certain socially improper ways and, for that reason, acquitted the student of a second
0: incident. All right, so in more fallout from the last term, um, we wanted to discuss Coach Kennedy's adventures post-Kennedy versus Bremerton School District, a big case from last term. This was a case about the uh, praying football coach. Uh, Recall that in that case, the coach argued that the school couldn't fire him for coercing students into prayer. Um, And we use that phrase... Consideredly, because those were the allegations in the case and those were the facts as dutifully recounted in Justice Sotomayor's excellent dissent.
2: But not in the majority opinion by Justice Gorsuch.
0: Conspicuously absent from the majority opinion by Justice Gorsuch, which characterized the facts really differently. Private um, And it turns out in somewhat suspect ways. So after his big victory, the coach got reinstatement papers from the school and while school started was instead, rather than actually resuming the job he claimed to really wish to return to, was instead up in Alaska, meeting with former Vice President Pence, receiving engraved rifles at the American Legion convention?
2: As one does. Um, and remember, the school district here had argued that this case was moot, that the court shouldn't decide it because there was no justiciable issue, because the coach although he had been put on an administrative leave, did not appear to want his job back. And the fact is, the court didn't address this or didn't seem bothered by it at all. And yet the facts have unfolded in ways that seem to bear out the school district's account of things. Um, He is in Alaska. He is not trying to coach football anywhere. And so, again, it really raises questions about whether the majority played fast and loose with the facts and indeed ignored facts that were inconvenient to its preferred understanding of this case. And Coach K, Coach Kennedy, not Coach Kavanaugh, Coach Kennedy responded, where else? On Fox News, in an op-ed basically saying that we're trying to work it out so I can be back next year. Um, But until then, until we work it out, I'm gonna be on the conservative speaker circuit and getting rifles and whatever else one gets when one is on that circuit.
3: So that's the fallout from Kennedy versus Bremerton School District. Uh, We also had some fallout from... Nyserpa versus Bruin, the major Second Amendment case in which the court basically told lower courts to just, quote, do some loose originalism when assessing a Second Amendment challenge. And so here, a district court just did some originalism and declared unconstitutional a federal law that prohibits people who are under indictment for certain crimes from possessing guns. The person in this case had been indicted for burglary and jumping bail. And this is what happens when originalist hotboxing is the law of the Second Amendment. Um, for those of you who couldn't make it through the difficult audio of last week, um, originalist hotboxing is where a judge goes into their chambers, closes the door, rolls up the windows, tokes up on Federalist papers, and just asks themselves what the vibes are and does that.
2: I- I'm just staring in Justice Scalia in Heller because <laughs> this had been addressed earlier.
0: Known squish, Justice Scalia. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of where we are honestly that yeah. that, that is kind of we're I mean, we um,
2: <laughs> <like> Rhino <laughs> <It's> like <laughs> obviously liberal squish <laughs>
0: it's so bleak Okay, oh, it's so bleak all right well so let's let's try to take a, a, a turn i don't know if it's a happier turn exactly but a turn of some sort which is that we said uh we would <laughs>
2: What's that you say?
0: (laughs) Um, So we said that we would wait until Melissa was back um, to really discuss Ginny. So here we go. Right. So has Ginny Thomas been up to anything since we last recorded, as we alluded to at the outset of this episode? Yes, she has. So what have we learned about Ginny's activity since we all gathered to chat?
2: Well, we learned from The Washington Post that Ginny Thomas, in addition to sending text messages to Mark Meadows, was also pressing lawmakers to overturn Joe Biden's victory not just in Arizona, but also in Wisconsin. So two pretty big swing states. Weird, I guess. And we also know that the January 6 committee has reached an agreement for Mrs. Thomas to be interviewed. So yes, Virginia, there is a special committee. <laughs>
3: So she was interviewed last week. Uh, She had prepared a statement reiterating her belief that the election was stolen. Super curious if she also repeated the bit that Joe Biden was about to be off a barge um, off Guantanamo Bay awaiting trial for treason. Like, I appreciate her commitment to this, whatever it is before a congressional committee. Um, So that's Something.
0: So she also apparently insisted during this testimony that she never discussed politics or any of her post-election activity with her husband.
3: And good enough for me. (laughs) All
0: good here. And the interview, right? I mean, look, we can stipulate that every relationship is different. We don't know anything about their internal dynamic, but
2: and and I don't want I don't want to give the impression that wives are just simply appendages of their husbands no, and no. they don't have independent thoughts.
0: But, but the this point is, is a they do have
3: independent thoughts, which they share and talk
0: about. It like, is just totally, yes, it is so implausible to me, crediting her as an independent actor with lots of thoughts and activities, many of which we have learned about in the last few months, that she was this convinced that the election was stolen, working this hard by phone, by email, who knows how else, to lobby every government power holder that she could find to do something about this theft and yet never mentioned it to her husband. It's just not credible.
2: Ginny, who are you on the phone with? Uh, just some folks in Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like, like, what did you do today, Ginny?
3: Made um, <laughs> a couple of phone calls, wrote some text messages to Mark Meadows. Do you know him? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, but, but seriously, like, think about when you ask someone, how's it going or how are things, right? I'll usually say something and then say, well, despite the creeping risk of fascism that we are facing, right? Because like people talk about what is happening in the world around them, particularly when they care about the future and fate of our country.
0: Say what you will about Ginny, but she clearly cares. She cares. (laughs) Maybe she just cares a little too much. Too much. I uh, and that's like, yeah.
2: like if Ginny Thomas was doing an interview. What's your, what's your weakness, Ginny? I care too much. <laughs> right.
3: But back to serious business. So we do need to rename our recurring Ginny Thomas segment because when we were doing this, you know, last spring, et cetera, Ginny Tonic was the drink of the Perfect. summer that Melissa was refreshing. coined. Yeah.
2: yeah. But, but now- it's not appropriate right now.
3: No, we're in the fall. It's not
2: appropriate. I think for Ginny Thomas cocktail hour slash sweater weather, it's got to be a hot Ginny Toddy.
3: What do Mm. you think? It's decorative gourd season. Pour yourself a hot Ginny Toddy and send a few emails.
2: (laughs) Text. (laughs) Form text. text. Like form text. Remember, these were just mailed out mass texting. This is not anything specific.
3: Yeah, but don't talk to your spouse. Or Definitely don't talk other to your spouse about mm-hmm. the treason that the president. Make sure there is a wall between right. your different workplaces. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of those workplaces, the other side of that wall. Um, so last week we talked about the public remarks from. Justice Kagan and the chief justice about the legitimacy of the court and the relationship between public opinion and the Supreme Court. And the reply guy on the Supreme Court, Sam Alito, decided to chime in and come for Justice Kagan. He's
2: really functioning as just Chief Justice Roberts' anger translator, I think.
3: Sam Alito is a messy bitch who loves the drama <laughs> and because in a comment to the Wall Street Journal, Justice Alito said, quote, it goes without saying that everyone is free to express disagreement with our decisions and to criticize our reasoning as they see fit. But saying or implying that the court is becoming an illegitimate institution or questioning our integrity crosses an important line. I mean guess
2: what friend lines have been crossed and not uh, just by Justice Kagan
3: like (laughs) Like the whole country has crossed a line friend. Like, Maybe your opinion in Dobbs crossed a line maybe right a Supreme Court justice just emailing some comments to the Wall Street Journal crosses a line. I feel like we're like one week away from Sam Alito emailing the Wall Street Journal with some thoughts about Lizzo playing like Madison's flute and like (laughs) you know wanting his comments on that included too. I mean his. I, mean, I feel like half the people who complained
2: about that never knew James Madison had a crystal flute to no, begin with. Oh, of so. course
3: not. Of course not. Or that Liza
0: was an accomplished flautist. No. I think Oh, also everyone knew him. that. No, no, you, you no. She's always, so. I'm sorry. she's always. She's oh, always played of the course flute. We knew that. No, we of knew course. that. But do you I'm think, think the people complained about didn't. it,
2: do?
0: Yes. No, 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 no I don't no, think. I think a lot of people didn't.
3: Yeah. And just don't like. complained
0: anyway. I'm not saying they. But I think they somehow genuinely did not realize that she is a trained classical flautist. Yeah. In addition to being incredible at everything else.
3: So Sam Alito's position is basically it is always improper, unfair, and now apparently a breach of constitutional norms for anyone to criticize him or question his decisions. Like he views voicing concerns about the court as a transgression.
2: This is like big monarchist vibes, I have to say. I mean, I feel like King Charles might be on this tip, like mostly with regard to pens and other writing implements, but maybe also just general criticism.
0: They do have a similar vibe, don't they? I think so. Um, Look, but to reiterate something that we mentioned last episode, lots of Republican appointees on the court have seen, you know, very fit to question the legitimacy of the court when they disagreed with the court's ruling. So it's a little rich for Sam Alito right now to be saying it crosses some, you know, heretofore you know, never crossed line to be criticizing the legitimacy of the court. And you guys said email. I mean, I'm so curious how he got this comment to the Wall Street Journal. First of all, the, it's telling that he picked the Wall Street Journal as the outlet to which he wanted to give this comment. But I'm just like, I thought he might have picked up the phone and just called someone. You guys think he emailed? Told someone at a cocktail party, like, run this? Maybe that was... A...
3: Yeah, like he knocked back another one of those drinks and just shot off an email. I mean, okay. that's that's my work. That's how you theory. think it went down? Yeah. Okay.
2: I mean, I think it just goes to show like not even the justices are over last term. So if you're not over it either, you're in good company. Indeed.
3: Um, so to wrap up, uh, maybe, time to underscore that the YOLO court, it's a thing now. Like it's definitely a thing because. Um,
2: I mean, we coined the term and Leah coined the term, but I mean, we, we really have to give props to the court for running with it.
3: Exactly. They've <laughs> made it, like, really take off. Um, so, I mean, they're like, Leah, whatever you're throwing, we're catching. Right. <laughs> um, so Nina Totenberg, NPR correspondent and former Strict Scrutiny guest, appeared on Stephen Colbert's show to discuss her book, Dinners with Ruth. And she said, quote, one scholar calls this the YOLO court. And I, I appreciated that. That's all I'll say. I mean, I like it when
2: you get your flowers, Leah Lippman, and and you deserve this one because you definitely put that out there. So deserving. And and speaking of the YOLO court and fashion and the fashion (laughs) of the YOLO court, listeners, it's here. You asked, we heard you, and we have answered. We finally have our new Strict Scrutiny merch. It launched on September 29th, and it's so fantastic. And if you're really sad about the court, I can only say two words, retail therapy, console yourself about this new Supreme Court term that's going to be as bananas as the last one by getting yourself some of our new merch, wearing it for the first day of term while all of this is just going to unfold. At least you'll know that you are wrapped up in a gorgeous 100% cotton made for you amazing tea that makes clear where your allegiances lie. No law, just vibes or YOLO cord, and they're fantastic. I haven't gotten one yet. I'm very jealous, but it's coming and I can't wait. You can head to crooked.com forward slash store to check it out. And again, the merch only lasts as long as the merch lasts. So get it while it's hot.
0: And one last thing before we go Crooked is bringing you the election coverage you love to hate with Crooked Radio every weekend in October on Sirius XM Progress and on the Sirius XM app. Join our lineup of podcast hosts, candidates, experts, and more, including Strict Scrutiny, as we break down all the issues that matter this November, dive into the conversations shaping our current political climate, and give the only 100% correct opinions in politics. You don't want to miss this. Subscribe now and get up to four months of SiriusXM. See offer details at SiriusXM.com forward slash crooked.
2: Can I add one more thing? Yeah. You okay. do it. So
0: YOLO, right? YOLO. You only live once. <laughs> you only podcast
2: once. So we love seeing our strict scrutiny listeners out in the wild. And I really had the pleasure of meeting at a picnic last weekend my new friend Miles, who is the proprietor of Bubbles and Brew, which is like a mobile Prosecco, Sauvignon Blanc, Merlot, like thing where like wine comes out of taps. It was amazing. Um, I loved it. Um, a, just a mobile wine truck. And Bubbles and Brew was at this mom's picnic that I attended, and I met Miles, who is a strict scrutiny super fan. So Miles, thank you for the ongoing flowing of Prosecco. Um, you knew that this term was hard, and last term was hard, and. So just all going to be hard and you kept my cup flowing and I love it. Uh, thank you for listening and thank you to all of you for listening. We
3: really appreciate you. That's all we have time for. This episode, Strict Scrutiny, is a crooked media production hosted and executive produced by me, Leah Littman, Melissa Murray, and Kate Shaw. Produced and edited by Melody Rowell with audio engineering by Kyle Seglin, music by Eddie Cooper, production support from Michael Martinez, Sandy Gerard, and Ari Schwartz, and digital support from Amelia Montooth. You can find us on Twitter at Strict Scrutiny underscore and on Instagram at Strict Scrutiny Podcast. Meet us back here next week for recaps of the First oral arguments of the term and bring those drinks. Drink. <laughs>